My name is Alan Jones and my work seeks to create understanding of the importance of exploration geophysics for mineral exploration and in particular uh, natural source electromagnetic methods which we call magnetotellurics and, and the utility that you can use MT4 in mineral exploration. Welcome to Seismic Sound Off, exploring the depth and usefulness of geophysics for the scientific community and the public. I'm your host, Andrew Gary. Critical mineral exploration will play a key role in human development and progress. The April 2023 special section of The Leading Edge focuses on the issue of critical minerals from the perspective of recent progress in mining exploration and anticipated future needs as the global energy economy transitions to higher use of and reliance on renewables. In this conversation, Dr. Alan Jones, guest editor and author for this special section in The Leading Edge, defines critical minerals and how and why each country defines them differently. He explains why the public has a dim view of mining and what we can learn from China's long-term mineral vision. He elaborates on the valuable role of copper in utilizing electric vehicles and why we still don't understand the planet we live on. Alan also makes a case for why we must inspire the next generation with the possibilities of critical minerals exploration. Do you want to be part of the future of humanity? This is the question at the center of this can't-miss episode. To read April's special section and find the complete biography for Alan, visit seg.org podcast or check out the episode show notes where you're listening. And now, my conversation with Alan Jones. Yeah, it's great to speak with you. We don't feature MT too much on, on this show, so it's nice to to kind of have that focus as well as just talking about minerals. So April's The Leading Edge, of which you were a guest editor, written an article, focuses on critical minerals, and that's what we're talking about today. How do you define critical minerals? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a broad question because everyone seems to define it differently. And as I discussed in that Leading Edge article, Different countries define critical minerals depending on their own, often political biases, but also econ economics, accessibility, and such. And uh, to me, a critical mineral is one that that we need in order to for our society to progress into the future. And one mineral that. Uh, I spent a lot of time discussing is, is copper, which isn't on the critical mineral list for many countries. It is on the critical mineral list for Canada and Japan, but not for the EU or for the USA or Australia. It kind of makes a, a little intuitive sense to me that different parts of the world could see certain minerals as, as critical and others not. And, and kind of transitioning to something that really struck me in, in your intro to this, you said that the market forecast for electric vehicles in the U United States is expected to increase by 470% in, in the next eight years. If that estimate is accurate, how will it impact the critical minerals used for electric vehicles? Well, you know, a lot, a lot of these um, statements by politicians and policymakers have no basis in reality. And it's rather frustrating when people make these sort of statements. Our own, uh, in Canada here, our own prime minister has made statements about wishing to achieve uh, EV, totally EVs by 2035. But in order to do that, as I lay out in my article, 
we have to hugely increase uh, mineral exploration and mining because we just don't have enough exploration and mining going on in order to satisfy the, those uh, political statements. Yeah, it's kind of exciting, though. And on the flip side, that means there's a, there's a lot of opportunity there in this space. And why, why would you say the utilization of critical minerals is a complex problem? Well, because it involves a number of different aspects. You've got the societal uh, acceptance aspect of mining, which is huge. And generally, society has got a dim view of mining because, of course, all the bad news makes the news. What doesn't make the news is when mining goes well and then people are happy to have cell phones and laptops and and all the devices they have in the home and they don't think about the mining needs to give them. But what they do hear about are uh, catastrophes that have happened. And a lot of these uh, we guard against now. We don't. We have better regulatory regimes, environmental controls than we did years ago. But still, those mines are still leaching, like the mine that I discussed in my article uh, that was only, only operating for six years in the 50s in British Columbia, is still leaching uh, all sorts of toxins into the local river system. Yeah, my family is from the Appalachian region in the United States, and I think a lot of them, their first thought is strip mining, uh, and, and that could be for other people as well. Looking at uh, some of the papers, there are four papers in the special section. What is the goal and the ultimate aim of the Metal Earth Project? Well, Metal Earth has got, at its fundamental basis, it wants to try to understand why it is that you have two regions in Ontario, one called the Abitibi and the other called the Wabigoon, and these are sub-provinces of the superior province an Archean aged province. And the Abitibi is very rich in its mineral endowment. And the Wabigoon province in the western part of Ontario is the same age. It's got a lot of the same geological markers, but does not have or hardly has any mineral endowment. And so one of the ultimate overarching questions that the uh, Metal Earth project is addressing is why is there this difference? And so they've conducted a number of geological, geochemical, geophysical studies in the two areas. The focus to date of Metal Earth, and you saw that in the paper that's published, the focus has been on the Abitibi region because that's where all the interest is, because that's where all the metals are, as well as gold. And so they've had a lot of industry support to provide additional funding for more data acquisition in the Abitibi. And so the focus has been in that area really to date, and they've not had much of an opportunity to look and address this fundamental difference between these two areas. But knowing that, and I think we've moved a long way. I mean, it was really the Australians who first developed this idea that you don't go looking for postage stamp indicators of a, a local deposit. What you look at is the whole mineral system. And what that means is you try to understand the very large-scale system that, that caused these small deposits to be in place closer to surface. And so we've, we've got a much better understanding now that we really have to understand the prior tectonics, and the prior tectonics will, will have led to certain development of certain uh, geothermal conditions 
and mineral conditions that would lead to fluid pathways and emplacement on the surface. And the Australians needed this because they've got 100, 200, 300 meters of uh, regolith in, on top of their basement. They can't see the basement, not like in Canada and some of the US where you've got basement and surface. So they need to understand how if efficiently and effectively where to look. And so they've been developing this idea for some years now, very successfully. And we're trying to see if we can bring some of their concepts into Canada, certainly, and also the U.S. What breakthroughs have the Chinese-led Deep Resources Exploration and Mining Program discovered? That's an interesting question because, not surprisingly, the Chinese can be a little bit careful about the, the information they release. And what you read in the paper as, as some successes, but I think there's been more successes than that. But fundamentally, what the Chinese are doing is really what we all should be doing, which is to try to understand the mineral endowment beneath our feet of, our, of every one of our countries and to undertake a uh, mineral resources program that is comprehensive. What the Chinese uh, geoscientists were able to do was to raise the earth sciences to the same level as, of importance as space science and um, fundamental physics. And so they, they've, they've got a huge amount of money. It only works out to about, I think it's something like 10 Canadian dollars equivalent per Chinese person, but there's a lot of Chinese people. With them, so that's a huge amount of money. They've got billions for this for this project. And at the end of this, they will really understand their own metal endowment. And, and we should be doing the same. We've been a bit um, careless, I think, uh, in the West, not having a long-term vision. And the Chinese have a long-term vision of where they want to be in 50 years, 100 years. Whereas in, in the West, the vision is often on a political timescale. Projects are started and stopped on political timescales, but we need to take this 50-year look and see where do we want to be. And there was a problem with, uh, for example, lithium, that um, Australia was a huge producer of lithium, but the world allowed China to become the dominant player in the lithium game. And we're slowly backing away from that. And the same with rare earths. China was at one point producing over 90% of the rare earths, uh, and this is a, is a worry if any one country has a stranglehold on a, on a particular uh, metal or mineral, the rest of the world is in trouble if that country decides for whatever reason to throttle access to that metal or mineral. Yeah, that creates a, a tenuous environment at, at best there. You know, we, we touched briefly earlier about that there is a, a public misperception of mining I'd like to just kind of go in on that a little bit further, and and if you could highlight, you know, a, you know, one or two just misperceptions of mining that the public has. Well, the, the two biggest misconceptions I think is that mining is a dirty, antisocial activity, and the second is that mining is involved with low technology. Now, both of those statements have some truth in them. Mining is dirty. You do, you do have to go and dig into the ground, but you can do that environmentally consciously now. And you can do it also using green energy. I mean, the largest copper mine in the world in Chile, uh, the energy 
for the mine is now uh, is now produced from renewables. You you have this aspect that the, of the, the public perception of mining, which we we have to change the public perception of mining of, and then the second aspect is that it involves low technology, not only for the extraction but also exploration. The exploration uses geophysical methods, and these geophysical methods primarily were developed by the mid-19th century, with electromagnetism being the last of the, of the major methods used. But the students are looking for excitement, and perhaps they don't see novelty and excitement in mineral exploration. But I can assure you that for those of us who are working in the game, it, it's just as novel and it's just as exciting. We have fundamental problems we're trying to address on all different aspects, from instrumentation to processing to analysis to modeling to inversion, which calls on skills that are equivalent to the skills needed to put a man on the moon. Yeah, that kind of goes to, to this next question here. What would be your elevator pitch for a student to study exploration geophysicists, especially as focused on mining critical minerals? Do you want to be part of the future of humanity? Do you, do you want humanity to develop as it should along its technological path? Because we need you to be part of that, and we need you to aid us in exploring for the metals and minerals we need to future-proof human development. And you've mentioned this a few times that, that uh, about copper and how some countries consider that a critical mineral and others don't. What role does copper play in reaching a net zero future? Well, it's immense. Well, the, the obvious one is that, in fact, the amount of copper you need in an electric vehicle is something like five to ten times the amount of copper you need in uh, a standard internal combustion engine. And that is just from all the wiring that's required. Uh, but perhaps lesser known is that infrastructure required to provide the electricity locally for people to charge up their EVs. And the estimates are huge in terms of the increased need for wiring and for transformers and for distribution networks. And coupled with that, that these, uh, these distribution networks have a certain lifetime. And the ballpark figures that I relate in, in the article are that uh, it's something like 40 to 60 year lifetime of all the um, electrical infrastructure when the wiring has to be replaced and around the world is, is gigatons of electrical wiring that all has to be replaced within this century. What does metals companionality mean? I have a physics background uh, and I did physics first degree and then went on to do geophysics for my uh, postgraduate degrees. And I have little geochemistry in my background. So when I started to read up about about this, it was a bit of a surprise because uh, I naively expected if you wanted each metal or mineral, you go and dig for that metal or mineral, but it's not true. There are certain metals and minerals that you find as byproducts for exploiting and extracting other metals and minerals. And so I, I gave in the article the case of zinc. 
if we're mining for zinc, then we get indium, germanium, and cadmium as byproducts. And so if we stop mining for zinc, we'll stop getting indium, germanium, and cadmium. And all of these are essential for touchscreens, LEDs, fiber optic cables, semiconductors, etc. Well, you know, hopefully as more awareness grows for the need for critical minerals, not only for the public, but even for geophysicists and possible geophysicists looking to, to go into the field. What do you hope is the main takeaway from these four papers? The main takeaway is that it's a complex problem. It's a problem that involves a wide variety of skills to address in, in order to have a, a net zero future. But it's a problem that we have a social imperative and responsibility to address. If we don't somehow solve this, we're going to be in serious trouble by, first of all, we won't reach net zero, but second, our uh, technological progress will be impeded because we just won't have the metals and minerals around to be able to deal with our growth. And one issue in particular that I focus on that doesn't really get a lot of airtime is that of a training of young minds and young people. And this this has to start with interesting young people at, at school level. And in fact, the, the huge drop that was seen in, in UK enrollments at universities, they saw a 24% drop in just uh, four years. Uh, that drop was associated with the dropping of geology courses at uh, primary and secondary schools. So I think and what we have to do is capture young minds just like young minds are captured by the by flying to the moon or, or flying to uh, planets in the solar system or knowing about exoplanets, it's important we capture those young minds in order to point out to them that we don't understand our own planet. And it is the planet we live on. It's the one future we have for the foreseeable future. It's vitally important. That, that we capture young minds to aid us in understanding our planet. I really like that. And lastly here, what principle, teaching, or point of view has helped you succeed in your field? In my own personal academic field of natural source electromagnetic methods, uh, magnetotellurics, I think what has been my, my success has been at bringing MT into the broader geoscience community and trying to correlate magnetotelluric results with seismic results and to correlate magnetotelluric results with uh, geochemistry. And so there's a lot of siloization in, in uh, the geosciences. If anything, it seems to be getting worse uh, that young people these days, there's just so much to know in each particular field. When, when I started my uh, PhD, I could read all the papers in magnetotellurics because there weren't that many. But these days, there's hundreds written each year, and young people coming into magnetotellurics have to decide on one aspect. Are they going to work on instrumentation? Are they going to work on processing? Are they going to work on modeling? Are they going to work on inversion? And just to focus a narrower space, whereas I was fortunate I could work in all of those. And this is happening in all fields, that students are working in, in narrower and narrower 
parts. And what we're seeing less and less of is overviews. And, and to my mind, we have to move to that. We have to start developing students that are comfortable with geochemistry, geology, and geophysics. Well, I, I appreciate your responses. I appreciate you working on this special section in the leading edge as well as contributing an article, which is so pulling double duty is always hard. And, and thank you for sharing your, your thoughts on this important area. All right, thank you, Andrew. You reached the end of Seismic Sound Off. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to be the first to know about the next episode, please follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Two of my favorites are Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you have episode ideas, feedback for the show, or want to sponsor a future episode, visit seg.org podcast and find the box titled Contact Seismic Sound Off. Zach Bridges created original music for this show. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary at Treasurement. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Cobb, Kathy Gamble, and Ali McGinnis. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off. <laughs>